0: The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel
1: of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word of God for the people of God. Your body
0: thinks it's lunchtime right now, so I hope you maybe brought a snack or something. We're gonna need to make it about 30 more minutes. Uh, So, hey, the 9 a.m. service was just packed, and I was just looking out there going, you guys have already, because you've been up for a long time, going, man, is it church yet? So you guys have to just delay through lunch. Uh, Hey, I wanna uh, mention something before we get into the sermon this morning. Just by way of announcement, you've probably seen this in the weekly emails, but a month from yesterday, We are hosting our parenting conference. This is something we do every two years or so just because we're a church with lots of moms and dads trying to figure out how to raise kids in a way that honors the Lord. And we try to give some help with that and put some momentum behind that about every 24 months. And so that gathering, that little conference is coming up the first weekend of December. It happens on Saturday Uh, It's like most of Saturday, just given to thinking together about the work of raising kids. So I want to put that before you, especially if you're a mom or a dad raising kids, we'd love to have you join us for that in just a way that we try to help and serve uh, the parents in our congregation. So more information will come out on that in tomorrow's email, along with links to register and so forth if you would like to do that, and feel free to pass it on to other people you might know. Who might benefit from that as well. We always love to welcome in uh, friends from outside of our church who are trying to be faithful to that same work. Um, Well, a minute ago, Justin prayed for uh, us to just call to mind people that we want to see know Christ. And one of my joys and longings as a pastor is to see non-Christians become Christians. I hope that's one of your longings, as well. I hope you want to see people in your life come to faith in Jesus. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to be sent by God as his representatives, as his ambassadors into the network of relationships that each of us has, right? You're connected to people that no one else in this room is connected to, and you're called by God to represent him in those spheres of influence. And so I hope that you want to see people come to know Jesus Christ, I hope you want to see people find the Christian faith plausible. I hope you want to see people find the gospel message compelling. Some of you are here this morning and you are not yet Christians. That's one of the reasons I love our church is because there are always folks among us who are on a spiritual journey trying to sort out who is God and what does the Bible teach and is Jesus really who he says he is. And so wherever you're at on that journey this morning, I want you to know this is a a great place for you to be because this is a church where we just value giving you the time and space to sort through those questions at your own pace. And we want you to know Jesus. We want you to worship Jesus. But we also know that has to play out in everybody's life according to the story that God is writing in your life. And so we just try to make this as hospitable a church as possible for people that are on that journey. If you are a Christian, perhaps you grew up in a church or in a tradition that emphasized evangelism, that taught you or trained you or equipped you to be able to communicate the basic message of the gospel, the basic truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do for or in a way that could be understood by people who um, aren't yet Christians. And and many of you, if you grew up in a a Christian tradition, that was a, a part of what was emphasized was evangelism, being able to share the gospel with someone in a meaningful way. I I hope you have been equipped that way. Here's the question that I want to ask you though, this morning, is that all that's necessary? What would it take for your neighbor, or your friend, or your family member, a real human being that you have in mind who is not a Christian, what would it take for that person to find the gospel message compelling. I want you to think about that. Because I think most of you intuitively would agree that yes, they would need to hear the gospel message somehow, some way, but that it actually might take more than that. Listen to this really insightful observation from Leslie Newbegin, who is a British missionary and theologian And he wants us to understand the challenge of communicating the gospel in the modern world. Listen to what he says. Every person living in a modern society is subject to an almost continuous bombardment of ideas, images, slogans, and stories, which presuppose a plausibility structure radically different from that of Christianity. The power of contemporary media to shape thought and imagination is very great. Everything suggests that it is absurd to believe that the true authority over all things is represented in a crucified man. No amount of brilliant argument can make it sound reasonable to the inhabitants of the reigning plausibility structure. That is why I am suggesting that the only possible hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation which believes it. Jesus did not write a book. He formed a community. This community has at its heart the remembering and rehearsing of his words and deeds and the sacraments given by him. Insofar as it is true to its calling, it becomes the place where men and women and children find that the gospel gives them the framework of understanding, the lenses through which they are able to understand and cope with the world. I want you to reflect for a minute on the importance of what Newbegin is saying. What he's saying is, we all live in some kind of plausibility structure. There's a way that the world around us tells us what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And because of the plausibility structure of the modern world, the message of the gospel coming into that plausibility structure just upsets its whole way of thinking. And so what people need is not just to understand or know or hear the message of the gospel, They also need to see it lived out in a real community of people. In other words, New Begin is saying we can't just preach the gospel. We also need to put the gospel on display. We need to allow people to see how the gospel looks when it's lived out in real human beings, in a real community. The only way our neighbors are going to find the message of the gospel credible is if they see it meaningfully lived out among us. If they can enter into a community of Christians and go, oh, so this is what it looks like when people really believe this message and live by it. That's what this section of the book of James is concerned with. God wants us to take seriously the quality of our life together. He wants us to take responsibility for making our church community a relationally beautiful place. Because his intent is that our relationships with one another would put the gospel on display in our city. So that's what James is concerned with. What he's concerned with in this section is to say, we can't just know the message of the gospel. We've got to be changed by it and we've got to live it out in the way we relate to one another. So as we engage this text this morning, I want you to have a deeper concern for relational wholeness in your own life and in our church. I suspect there are just a lot of ways that we have learned to make peace with relational brokenness. There are probably relationships you've just sort of written off or moved on from. There are probably conflicts and squabbles that you just would rather not engage And I also think there are a lot of ways that individualism shapes just how we experience the people of God in the first place. So we tend to see the church as a vendor of religious goods and services that exist to help me become a better Christian or to help me live a meaningful life with God rather than seeing the church as a community for which we are responsible. Like we just approach things like consumers and just say, well, Give me what I need. Instead of seeing the church as a community of people that we have responsibility for and that God expects us to care about in a meaningful way. So James wants to get after some of the things that disrupt the relational beauty and harmony of the people of God. So this is one of those sermons. This is one of those texts that gets right down into the nitty-gritty of the gospel community that you're going to hang out with this week and the conflicts that might be there, or maybe even your family table at lunchtime. All right, so here's how James is going to approach the topic. I'm going to give you a five-point outline. It's basically like a, a medical approach to what we're going to tackle. All right, so James, first of all, wants to show us the symptom, starts by talking about the symptom, then gives us an initial diagnosis, and then points to the deeper disease, and then the cure, and then the medicine. Right, So those are the five points of the sermon this morning. We're going to look at the symptom, the initial diagnosis, the deeper disease, the cure, and the medicine. Some of you guys are trying to write all five of those down, and I'm just going to move right on from them, and you're going to be like, what was that fifth one? We'll come back to it, all right? So let's start by looking at the symptom. Here it is, James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So here's the symptom. Quarrels and fights. Conflict, division, dissension, disunity, fragmented relationships. What a wonderfully baseline human problem, right? I mean, if you are raising kids, this is like 60% of your parenting, isn't it? It's like, hey, stop fighting with each other. I know he took the toy. I know you had it first, right? It's just, can we all get along? And listen, if you're an adult, think about how much of your life is marked by little quarrels and squabbles and conflict. What's fascinating is kids actually have more integrity than we do because they just lack the sort of complexity to hide all of that stuff. And so when conflict happens, they just need to deal with it right away because it frustrates them. What happens as we get older, is we just become more adept at hiding the ways that frustrates us, but it's still all boiling underneath there, right? We have just as much conflict and tension and disharmony and disunity in our lives. We're just a little better at hiding the ways it sets us off kilter. So as you know, there are two basic responses to conflict or tension or disharmony or disagreement. Uh, You know, we commonly call them fight and flight. Right, so some of you guys are more attackers. You're like, engage the conflict, let's dive in, let's have the argument, we gotta settle it sooner or later. And then some of you are more withdrawers, you know what? Let's just let that go by, we can come back to it later. No need to disrupt peace and harmony right now, let's just kinda move on, right? So I'm gonna make you pick a side right now. How many of you are more fight, attack, let's go fight it out right now, it's okay? All right, good, thanks for your honesty. How how many of you are more like, nah, let's just let it go? Wait till later, okay, good. Some of you are like bouncing back and forth between the two, depending on the situation, I know. Um, So if you're more of the attacker, more the fighter, um, your quarrels and fights are probably right on the surface. Like they're easy to spot. You know what they are, right? Because you just had them on the way here. Um, (laughs) If you're a withdrawer, um, your quarrels and fights might be a little harder to detect because you're pretty good at just sort of like moving on from them, which doesn't mean they're not there. It just means they're not engaged all the time, right? So what's happening is you're going to have to look a little bit under the surface to say, what things have set you sideways? Where is there in you frustration, anger, bitterness, resentment? Those things sort of just brewing under the surface because there are fights and quarrels in your life. You just sort of have not touched them recently. Right? Well, let's I think it's helpful when the Bible asks a question like this just to not keep reading and say, okay, well, how would I answer that question? So let's do that, right? If if you were to ask, hey, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You all know the answer. You know what it is, right? It's other people. That's what causes fights and quarrels. If you weren't such a difficult person, I wouldn't want to fight with you this way, right? If it wasn't for you acting so poorly, I would not be feeling the frustration I feel right now. We all do this. You do it as a kid, right? He started it. That's your first, like, you all learned that when you were kids. Like, you know what? It's not me. It's that person. That's how we would answer the question. What causes quarrels and fights? Well, all the difficult people in my life. That's what causes it. Well, notice that that's not the answer that the Bible gives, all right? So now we move from the symptom to the initial diagnosis. Look at the diagnosis James gives. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You notice the word passions is used twice here. And it's the Greek word hedonis, from which we get the word hedonism. It's just another word for your desires, your pleasures, the things you want. What's at the heart of fights and quarrels? The simple answer, friends, is this. Your self-interest is at the heart of that. You want what you want, and so do I. And that's why we end up at odds with one another. And listen, notice that that's what blocks your prayers also. Verse 3, he starts out by talking about fights and quarrels among you, but verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, the same self-interest that plays out horizontally is playing out vertically as well. Have you ever stepped back and just evaluated what you tend to pray for? And how many of those things are kind of just about your own self-interest? This is why praying for others and praying with others is such a powerful spiritual discipline because it pulls you out of yourself. It helps you to care about things that are not your own immediate sphere of self-interest. It's why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? We need to pray about something bigger than just our own self-interest. So the initial diagnosis is, here's why you have fights and quarrels, your passions are at war within you. And this phrase has two senses. First, what it's saying to us is, you are a conflicted person, right? You you might think of Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul famously says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Every one of us is a conflicted person. Like there really are good and true and noble desires within you. You really do want some good things. You're made in the image of God as Justin already reminded us. So some of the things you want are good and noble and right. And at the same time, a lot of what you want is driven by just pure self-interest. You're a conflicted person. You're a cauldron of competing desires. But the other way of understanding this phrase is like this. Your passions are ready for war within you. For every one of you, there's an army ready to go to battle at the first sign of provocation living within you, right? Like it doesn't take much to muster the troops inside you and send them into battle. All they need is the right provocation. Think about how profound this is. The Bible is saying what causes fights and quarrels among you, among us, is your passions. It's not the other people around you. It's not how difficult they are to live with or how much they want their own way. The problem is inside you. I mean, it's fascinating. Where else are you going to hear this, right? I mean, don't we live in a world right now that sort of wants to put all the emphasis on all the ways everybody else is a problem for you? Like those friends you have are probably toxic, and if they don't want to get along with you, you need to just cut them off because it's about them. Only the Bible says, hey, you know what? If you have conflict and fights and quarrels in your life, you know where you should start? Look in you, first of all. Like how much of this is about you? This is a, a classic biblical way of understanding things. We've, we've noticed throughout this whole journey that every time James says something, you can usually reference it right back to a teaching of Jesus, And this is no different, right? You remember the famous story that Jesus told or the way that he framed his teaching? He said, hey, if you want to deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye, here's what you need to do first. Take the log out of your own eye, right? Because all of us tend to see other people's sin more clearly than we see our own. We see other people's contribution to the problem more than we see our own. And so Jesus famously said, hey, the first thing you should do before you move towards someone else to deal with their issues look inward first. James is just saying the same thing. Hey, fights and quarrels are driven by passions that are at war within you. But it gets even better. There's a deeper disease driving your selfish passion. And we see that in verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You adulterous people is one of the strongest denunciations we have in the whole Bible. This is some of the strongest language the Bible uses anywhere. And it's using it for the fights and quarrels among you. So think about what that means about how seriously God takes relational beauty among his people. Like this is a big enough deal to God that he is not just say, hey, I'd like you guys to just take care of this, put this on the list of things that sooner or later you're going to address. This is a big enough deal to God that he says, you adulterers. That's strong language. Throughout the Bible, as you know, scripture uses the analogy of marriage to describe God's relationship with his people. God's covenantal bond with his people. One of the classic passages is Isaiah 54, 5, and 6. It says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit. Scripture says, God is our husband and we are his bride. And what James is saying is that your self-interest, which animates fights and quarrels among you, really comes down to betrayal. It's unfaithfulness. It's spiritual adultery. The God who sought you and pursued you and loved you and pledged his faithfulness to you, you have betrayed. And notice that James moves from the idea of marital unfaithfulness to the idea of friendship with the world. This shouldn't surprise you, right? Because if you're married, there's some friends you're okay with your spouse having and there's some friendships you're just not okay with, right? Like if there's a friendship with a really beautiful person who's a little bit of a threat, like, yeah, not a good friendship, right? We need to cut that one off. There are some friends that are okay, some friendships that are okay, and some that are not so okay. And James is saying, your spiritual unfaithfulness to God is rooted in the wrong kind of friendship. You have a friendship with the world that has led you into unfaithfulness. So what does friendship with the world look like? What is he talking about? What does it mean for God's people to have friendship with the world? I want to show you how this works because it's actually, James is saying something really profound And when you see this, it starts to unlock the key to gospel change and the key to spiritual transformation. So let's just think about some of the sort of basic ways of operating that are are present in the world. The world says to you, you should live for the applause of other people. What matters is how many likes, how many follows, how many fans, how many friends, how many admirers, You have. It matters who's impressed with you. So go ahead and live for that. And so perhaps before you met Jesus, you did whatever would get you applause in the eyes of your worldly friends, because you just wanted people's approval. And maybe that got you to some bad places in life. Maybe you lived for the applause of the wrong people, and that led you down some dark paths. So let's say you become a Christian, and now you enter into a new community of people And for these friends, what matters to them is whether you read your Bible, whether you're part of a small group, whether you study theology or attend church or serve others in your community. So you start doing all those things. But see, you can start doing all those things for the exact same reason you used to chase after the world. Because what you really want is the applause of the people around you. It's just a different group of people whose applause you're living for. See, what James is saying is the fundamental structure of your heart hasn't changed. Just the people applauding you have changed. Let me give you another example. The world around us says the highest good in life, the thing you should live for, is your personal satisfaction and fulfillment. Like you being fulfilled in life is what matters most. So maybe before you were a Christian, you pursued that kind of personal satisfaction and fulfillment in your work, in your career. And let's say you ran on that treadmill for a decade or two and you're like, well, this isn't working out so good. I got this great career. It's just not filling me up. It's not giving me the fulfillment and satisfaction as I thought it would. I've done all the stuff. I've chased all the dreams. I've gotten them all and they just don't satisfy. So then someone in your life told you that they had found personal fulfillment and satisfaction in a relationship with God. So you decide to give that a try. But see, the thing you're after hasn't actually changed. You're still chasing personal fulfillment and satisfaction. You're just finding it in religion instead of in your career. The same self-interest that animates the world can animate people in the church. That's what James means by talking about friendship with the world. He's saying, you haven't made a radical break with the world and with its value system. You can still be a completely worldly person who goes to church, who reads the Bible, who does the Christian thing. If the fundamental motivational structure of your heart hasn't changed, then you're just trading one form of self-interest for another form of self-interest. And James wants you to see that's not going to get to meaningful change. That doesn't create the kind of change you actually need. So he's started with the symptoms, fights and quarrels. He's given us an initial diagnosis. Hey, the problem is your passions that wage war within you. Now he's gotten down to the heart of the problem, friendship with the world. So I want you to see what's already happened. He started out with a horizontal problem. And he's shown us that that horizontal problem has a vertical root. The problem is not the difficult people in your life. It's not even your need for some better conflict resolution practices. The problem is spiritual adultery. The problem is friendship with the world. The problem is in your relationship with God. That's what's causing fights, quarrels. That's what's driving the self-interest in your life. Okay, so if that's the deeper disease, what's the cure? Well, it's actually right here in the text implicitly. It's not explicitly stated, but as soon as I say it, you're going to see that it's right there. The cure to the problem, the healing of the disease is this friendship with God. That's the answer, that's what we need. That's what changes everything. Look again at verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You get that there's a binary choice being given to you here, right? You can chase after friendship with the world or by implication, you can chase after friendship with God. James is hearkening back here to a little phrase in chapter 2 that you might have missed because we kind of breezed past it when we read through chapter 2. It's when James is talking to us about Abraham. James 2.23 says, The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called, what? A friend of God. What an amazing statement. You know, what's amazing about Abraham is not just that he had faith and believed God's promise, but he was a friend of God. He was called a friend of God. And listen, you, like Abraham, can be a friend of God. God doesn't want to just be your creator. He doesn't want to just be your Lord. He doesn't even want to just be your Savior. He wants real Friendship and communion with you. That's why the gospel is such good news because it doesn't stop at you getting your sin forgiven. It moves into actual friendship and fellowship with the living God. Listen, here's the core question for any kind of real change How do you change what you want? Isn't that the toughest question of all? Like you can change all your strategies, all your behaviors you can adopt some new practices in your life, but how do you change the thing you want? If you have a friend who is an addict or if you've ever walked with someone through addiction, you know this well. The problem is they want that drug and they're gonna do whatever it takes to get it. They will lie to you, they will steal from you, they'll do whatever it takes because that's the thing they want. You can see that really clearly with people who are in addiction, but you know what? That's true about every one of us as well. You want what you want. And when it comes down to it, you're going to do whatever it takes to get the thing you want. So how do you change what you want? How do you change at the deepest core of your being the things you actually desire? Well, Here's what James is saying that's so profound. He's saying friendship with God changes what you want. Because when you have a true friend, their wants start to become your wants. You've probably experienced this somewhere in your life. If God's given you a real meaningful friendship, what happens is, because of your love for that person, the things they want and desire, you start to want too. Because their desires become yours. Last weekend, I was in Austin, Texas, preaching at Providence Church, a church that's dearly connected to us here at Corumdale because it's a church that we helped to plant. 12 years ago, we sent a team of people from Omaha, Nebraska, including Micah Bruce and his wife, Allison, and a bunch of other folks down to Austin to join with another core of people to start this brand new church. And so it's a fun, thing for us to celebrate the connectedness between our two churches, and it's especially fun for me because that church is led by three of my longest term friends. This is a photo of me and Todd and Will and Kendall, the three pastors at Providence Church. I've known Todd since I was 18, I've known Will and Kendall since I was 25. That's basically half my life. These guys are dear friends of mine. And as you know, Austin, Texas is one of the fastest growing and most desirable cities in America, and that means the real estate market there is intense, okay? Um, Stuff's getting torn down and built bigger. Uh, The skyline downtown is starting to look more and more like Chicago. It is a dense, expensive place to be. And since these guys and their team planted Providence Church, one of their longings and desires has been to gather for worship in the heart of the city, in the downtown core. Now, like anywhere, it's a lot easier to find space in the suburbs. If you go 30 minutes from downtown, it's a lot easier to find a place to meet. That's what a lot of churches have done. But this church has always wanted to be, and these guys have always wanted to just express the gospel in the heart of the city. And they've had a bunch of different places that were sort of short-term meeting spaces. They've rented various facilities, and they just asked us repeatedly, hey, would you pray that God would give us the capacity to stay in the heart of the city? Well, what happened over time is because of my friendship with these guys, that became my desire as well. Like I started to find myself not only praying for that, but longing for that wanting that for them, trying to like get online and see if I could help them find some places downtown. Like, do you ever do this for your friends or like they're looking for a house in Milwaukee and you're like, I don't know anything about Milwaukee. I'm going to get on Airbnb or I'm going to get on realtor.com and see what I can find for you. Right? Well, just last month, this church Providence signed a 10 year agreement with a smaller declining church that happens to own a property that's about 100 years old on, the, on Martin Luther King Boulevard and University Avenue in the heart of downtown Austin. This property is worth $15 million. It was probably built for like 100,000, but it's worth $15 million. Well, Providence Church signed an agreement with this church that allows them to meet here and office here for the next 10 years. And Will called me. He's like, hey, we we got this agreement. Like, they're going to let us meet her. And I was like, awesome. And I was like celebrating, like applauding in my car, driving. I was like, this is amazing news, right? I found myself overjoyed by that news. Why? Well, because these are my friends and their desires kind of became my desires. Like, I wanted that for them because I love them. That's how friendship works. Well, in the same way, that's how friendship with God changes us. His desires become our desires because we love him and we want what he wants. And listen, here's the good news of the gospel. Human friends will come and go. Even the best friends you have, even the most faithful friends you have are going to fail you at times. But God will never leave you or forsake you. He is the friend who sticks closer than the brother. God has come from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ in order to make you his friend. Jesus went to the cross in order to make you his friend. In fact, on his way there, at His the last meal with his disciples. He said, no longer do I call you servants. From now on, I call you my friends. Because he knew he was going to the cross not just to forgive their sins, but to draw them into fellowship and friendship with himself. Friendship with God changes you. And listen, this is what I want for you. This is what I want for myself. It's my longing for our church. is just that we would be defined by deeper, truer, more real friendship with God. That's the cure. That's the thing that can really change us. That's what can lead to wholeness and healing and flourishing and the restoration of broken relationships and a diminishing of our desire to quarrel and fight. Friendship with God is the cure. It's what we most deeply need. So what's the medicine? What medicine do we take to lead us in the direction of that cure? Well, it's right here in verse 6 it's probably like you probably heard it read and you're like, yeah, 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 sure, I know that. I want you to slow down and listen to this. James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Let me read that again. But he gives more grace. I want you to let those five words sink in. What James is telling you is, there's always more grace for you from God. You can't exhaust the resources of God's grace. You can't spend it up and go bankrupt. God gives more grace. He's always got more to give. So some of you are here this morning and you're thinking, man, I... I've already messed up relationships in my life so bad. My marriage is so broken, or my friendships are so broken, or my family is so chaotically disordered. I've just kind of like missed my opportunity. I've used up the chance God's given me. Nope, you haven't. He gives more grace. Some of you are thinking, but I've already spent all the grace I've been given, and it hasn't gone very well. I'm like, I've used up all the grace God has given. Well, guess what? He gives more. Some of you are like, I'm not sure there's any hope for the relationships in my life or for my own inner turmoil and tension to be sorted out. Yeah, there is hope. You know why? Because he gives more grace. This is the best news in the world, friends. It means you can't ever outrun the grace of God. You can't get to the place in your life where there's no more for you. God's never giving up on you. God's not withdrawing from you his grace. He's always got more to give. And so James says, hey, what do we do about our self-interest? What do we do about our tendency to fight and quarrel? What do we do about the fact that we've sought friendship with the world and turned our backs on God? The answer is, hey, he gives more grace. God is always and eternally a giver. And friend, the good news is you can't exhaust or outrun his grace. There's more for you. Yeah, it's good news. And Where do you get it? How do you get it? Notice, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All you've got to do to receive all the grace you need is to stay humble, to get low. Or as Jack Miller famously said it, grace flows downhill. Grace goes to the low places. So man, when we're proud, when we're convinced we've got it figured out, when we're hardened, we're not going to experience the grace of God. When we're humble, when we're broken, when we're aware of our lack and our need and just willing to be the broken, messed up people that we are, guess what we get? Grace. Grace upon grace. This is why we come to the Lord's table every single week. Like, isn't it funny to you that all of you probably could get up here and say all the words I'm about to say? Because we do the same little deal every week. We're like, we're going to go out the left side of where you're sitting. You're going to come forward to one of these tables. You're going to be a person with bread. You can take wine or juice, go back to your seat. There's going to be a station in the back, right? I mean, you guys could all do this because you're used to hearing it every single week. And if you ever wonder, like, man, why do we do this every single week? Could we do this once a month, once a quarter? Maybe you came from a church and did it like once a year. It was like special communion Sunday, right? Why do we do it every week? You know why? Because he gives more grace and you need it. Like, this is a tangible reminder that every week, you're in need of the grace of God. And every week, God has more grace to give. And every week, he invites you to come and receive from him more grace to meet you in your lack, in your need, in your struggle, in your hardship, in all the places in your life where things feel broken and stuck. He gives more grace. So we just get the joy of acknowledging every week, we're people in need, Coming to a God who gives more grace and who promises to meet us through bread and wine and give us more of himself and more of his presence. So, in a minute, we're going to come to the table and I'm going to do the little speech that you could all do. But before I do that, I want to ask you three questions, all right? Three questions to close out this teaching from James. First question. What quarrels and fights do you need to lay to rest? Is there a battle that you just need to lay down? There's someone in this room you need to just forgive. Is there a place where there's conflict in your life that you just need to lay it to rest? What quarrels and fights do you need to lay to rest? Second, are you a friend of God? Do you want to be a friend of God? Is it possible, perhaps, that you're still standing at a distance, hearing the truth that God welcomes you as his friend, but unwilling to come in and join the party? Are you a friend of God? What a wonderful day for you to enter into that glorious invitation and say, I need to relate to God, not just as creator, not just as Lord but as one who's drawing me into friendship, who really wants to actually have fellowship with the real me. Third question, where do you need more grace? Where in your life does the statement, but he gives more grace, need to just meet you like good news this morning? Where's the place in your life where you just need more grace? Like you, you were convinced maybe you've used it all up. Maybe there's not any reservoir. Maybe it's like put fossil fuel and you're going to tap it all out and there's no more there. It's like renewable energy, you guys. It's like wind. Where do you need more grace? Would you hold that place up before him this morning as we pray? And let's ask him to meet us there. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have more grace to give. So we praise you that you see us in all of our fighting and quarreling. Thank you that you care so much about your church being a place of relational beauty that you're willing to use strong language to get our attention. So Father, we want to acknowledge the passions that are at war within us and pray for you to transform them. We want to acknowledge the places where we have sought friendship with the world and ask that instead you would draw us into friendship with you. And thank you that despite how far we've run from you, despite all the ways we've avoided your grace or denied your grace, you have more grace to give. So would you meet us this morning in your kindness? Draw us more deeply into your grace. Fill us with a fresh sense of all of your goodness and move us toward one another. Make us a people of love and kindness, and gentleness, and compassion, and goodness, so that the city and the world around us might see the beauty of your gospel. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.